It's reading through the New Testament, week number 46. This is for the week of November 13th through the week of November 19th. So we're getting very close to Thanksgiving as the holiday season approaches, and uh, we are uh, rapidly coming to a conclusion with our reading through the New Testament um, this year. So it's been quite the ride as we've learned about what God's Word has to say to us in the New Testament. And I hope it's been encouraging. I hope you've grown uh, throughout this time as we continue to do that uh, today. Uh, This week we're reading 1 Peter 4 through 2 Peter 3. Um, So we're reading the the rest of of, uh, Peter's first and and all of his second uh, epistle that he writes. Um, Of course, uh, these letters are written by the Apostle Peter. the uh, brother of Andrew, uh, two brothers who were uh, close friends and uh, followers and apostles of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter, we know him in the Gospels really well in a lot of ways. We know his personality. We know what kind of person he was. He was uh, a passionate man. He was a man who comes across as very um, very much uh, zealous full of zeal, uh, sometimes maybe full of pride, but also in a sense, very sincere. Um, he could be very full of himself in the sense in which he would say, Lord, um, these other guys might fall away, but I'm never going to fall away. And he could be very sure of himself. But on the other hand, there's something about Peter that's also very sincere. And, uh, and Peter's fall though, is a reminder to all of us that, uh, as we see in his restoration, though, as well, um, uh, is, is a reminder to us that uh, none of us are as strong as we think we are, uh, that, uh, but that God's grace is what holds us, sustains us, keeps us firm and planted. God is more interested in our salvation than we are. The Lord Jesus loved Peter so much more than Peter could ever love the Lord Jesus. And, uh, and yet, he did love the G- he did love Jesus as he says at the very end, where Peter where Jesus says, um, Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I don't love you as I should, and I know I should love you more, but I do love you somewhat. I in a sense, Peter uh, is like the man who says, I believe, help my unbelief, and Peter is saying, I love you, but help all the parts of me that don't love you as I should. And so we love the Apostle Peter. We love who he is. We love reading about him. And here in these epistles, he writes to us as a a senior member of of the uh, Christian church, uh, teaching the church and these Christians about what it means to follow Christ as pilgrims in this world as we head to the next world. Uh, the dates for these uh, epistles are around 62 to 63, and then the second one was maybe around 65 um, uh, A.D. Uh, so he's writing from, from Rome. Uh, we know Peter was eventually executed. Um, he's writing to Christians, it seems, in northern Asia Minor, um, writing to these people that he loves. And uh, the, the occasions are the first one 
<clears throat> is uh, in First Peter is because of persecution. These believers are suffering. And he's encouraging them in the midst of their suffering to be reminded of Christ, to uh, still live as lights in a dark world, and uh, to continue to press on and endure in Christ by his grace. The second letter is a response to false teaching, where uh, Peter is going to be responding to these false teachers who have come around, and Peter is, uh, again, writing to the church as to how they should deal with it. Both of these situations, by the way, still uh, are, are part and parcel of what it means to be a pilgrim follower of Christ in this world. The Church of Christ, the congregation, the flock that Jesus has bought— will be persecuted in this world to some extent and in some way. We will be opposed, and we must learn how to live and endure to in different ways and to greater degrees or lesser degrees, but in the world you will have trouble. And secondly, though, false teaching. We will always have to face false teaching. We will never reach a place in this world where the church does not have to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so we will always face troubles and trials from without and from within the church. And we must be ready. Uh, we don't want to simply be, uh, you know, uncharitable and always ready for a fight. On the other hand, we don't want to um, think that uh, things are just going to be okay. Um, that would be naive also. So there's, a, there's a, an important balance uh, that we need to have in Christ uh, together as we face persecution, as we face false teaching. And Peter here is is writing, and the Lord Jesus is speaking to us through Peter to teach us and to uh, instruct us and to change us so that we will be more like him in the midst of these very uh, these trials in, the, in this pilgrim life that we're walking on the way to heaven. So he's encouraging these Christians to keep going, to fight false teaching. And that's what he's doing in these two epistles. And that's why we're reading them uh, now. Uh, for the readings today, for 1 Peter 4 through 2 Peter 3, I want to read from Martin Luther. Martin Luther, I believe, uh, Charles Spurgeon, in his uh, Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist minister, has a uh, in the you know he he uh, had a book called or a section uh, something called commentating and commentaries. But basically, what it is is he's giving a um, uh, these are Spurgeon's top recommendations for commentaries that were around at his time. And he had a great appreciation for, I believe so, of this, these, these uh, commentaries of Luther on Peter. And if anybody knew what it was to face persecution, no, Luther didn't face it uh, to the degree that other people did. But on the other hand, Luther was an outlaw. I don't know if you knew that. He technically was an outlaw. He could, uh, because of his uh, stand uh, for the gospel, also, he was combating false teaching. So there's a sense in which um, Luther is is very well equipped to teach us and help us walk through what Peter is saying. Um, he's a he's a helpful uh, uh, a guide to the these uh, biblical books. Um, so let's listen to Luther um, as to what he has to say here um, uh, about these these uh, about these letters that are written by uh, the Apostle Peter. The first section that I want to read is uh, where Luther is commentating here upon 1 Peter uh, 4, beginning at verse 1. He's, this is, uh, I'll, I'll read Peter first. He, Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 
Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Luther writes about this section. St. Peter continues on the same path. Just as so far he has exhorted us all to suffer if it is God's will and has presented Christ to us as an example, so he now confirms this further and repeats it. He wants to say, since Christ, who is our leader and head, suffered in the flesh and gave us all an example, besides he redeemed us through his suffering, we should imitate him, equip ourselves in this way, and put on armor of this kind. For in Scripture, the life of the Lord Jesus, and particularly his suffering, is presented to us in a twofold manner. In the first place, as a gift, as St. Peter has already done in the third chapter. First, he stressed faith and taught that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ, that our sins have been taken away, and how he has given to us as a gift. This cannot be grasped in any other way than through faith. The apostle spoke about this when he said, Christ also died for sins once for all. This is the chief article and the best part of the gospel. In the second place, Christ is held up and given to us as an example and a pattern for us to follow. If we now have Christ as a gift through faith, we should go forward and do as he does for us. We should imitate him in, the whole, in our whole life and in all our suffering. That is the way St. Peter presents this here. But here St. Peter is not pr- speaking primarily of the works of love through which we serve and benefit our neighbor which are really good works, for he has said enough about this above, but he is speaking about works that relate to our bodies and serve us ourselves, works through which faith is strengthened so that we mortify sin in the flesh and thus are able to serve our neighbor better. For if I subdue my body so that it does, a, so that it does not become lascivious, I can also let my neighbor's wife and child alone. Thus, if I suppress hatred and envy, I become all the more willing to be kind and friendly to my neighbor. Now we have stated often enough that although we are righteous through faith and have the Lord Christ as our own, we are nonetheless also obligated to perform good works and to serve our neighbor. For we never become perfectly pure while we are living on earth, and everyone still finds evil lust in his body. To be sure, faith begins to slay sin and to bestow heaven, but it has not yet become perfect and really strong, as Christ says about the Samaritan, whose wounds were not yet healed. But he was bandaged and looked after in order that his wounds might be healed. This is also how it is here. If we believe our sin, that is the wound we have brought from Adam, is bandaged and begins to heal. But in one person this healing is less, and in another person it is more. The more each one chastises and subdues the flesh, and the more firmly he believes. Therefore, if we have these two things, faith and love, We should henceforth devote ourselves to sweeping out sin entirely until we die completely. For this reason, St. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same thought. That is, make a firm resolution and strengthen your hearts with the thought you receive from Christ. For if we are Christians, we have to say, my Lord suffered for me and shed his blood. He died for my sake. Should I then be so worthless as not to be willing to suffer? For since the Lord steps to the front in the fray, how much more should his servants rejoice to step forward? In this way, we gain courage to prevail and to arm ourselves in our thoughts in order that we may go through with joy. In scripture, the little word flesh means not only the body externally, where there is flesh and blood, bone and skin, but everything that comes from Adam, 
Thus God says in Genesis 6-3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. And in Isaiah 40, verse 5, we read that all flesh shall see the glory of the Lord. That is, the, this glory will be revealed to all mankind. Thus, we also confess in the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh. That is, that mankind will rise again. Accordingly, flesh means the whole man through and through as he lives here in this life. Now, the works of the flesh are enumerated by Paul one by one in Galatians five nineteen through 21. Not only the coarse carnal works, such as unchastity, but also the costliest and most sublime vices, such as idolatry and heresy, which are not only in the flesh, but also in reason. Therefore, one must understand this to mean that man, together with his reason and will, internally and externally, together with body and soul, is called flesh, because with all his powers, externally and internally, he sees only that which is carnal and which benefits the flesh. Accordingly, St. Peter now adds here that Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, it is certain that his suffering extended farther than into the flesh alone, for as the prophet Isaiah says, his soul suffered the great travail. In this way, you all must also understand what follows here. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. For this too refers not only to cutting off someone's head and to dismembering the body, but to everything that can hurt man, to whatever misery and distress he suffers. For many people have sound bodies, and yet inwardly they feel much heartache and wretchedness. If this happens for Christ's sake, it is profitable and good. For as St. Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The Holy Cross is a good means with which to subdue sin. When it attacks you in this way, your tickling, envy, and hatred, and your other rascality vanish. God has laid the Holy Cross on us in order that it may drive and compel us so that we have to believe and to extend a helping hand to one another. So what Luther there is talking about is that when Christ is, whenever the Paul here, or excuse me, Peter is talking about the idea of the flesh, he's talking about our whole lives, not simply our physical bodies, but the whole man. And what he points out is that Christ suffered in the flesh in his whole man. And similarly, God allows us to suffer. And one of the reasons he allows us to suffer, as, uh, Peter, as Luther points out, is to subdue our sin. The cross, what does the cross do? Well, as we read in Romans chapter 6, the cross is that we die with Christ. The old person that we are in the first Adam is put to death. That is the only way that sin is gotten rid of is by dying. You can't simply get rid of sin by, um, you know, uh, resuscitating uh, your life back. You have to kill the old man. The old man has to die. That's why Christ had to die. And that's why in our baptism, it preaches to us that we have died with Christ, that salvation is found, first of all, in death. Life is, first of all, found in death. And that goes against the way we naturally think about things. But that's what God is telling us. Um, if we want eternal life, the first thing we must do is take up our cross and die into this life, to the life, to the person that we are in Adam, so that we can become a new person in Christ and have eternal life so that the whole of us is crucified and the whole of us is raised. 
that's what our baptism preaches to us, and that's what the, Paul, that's what Peter here is is highlighting to us. And, and Luther points out the Holy Cross. God lays the cross on us so that we will cease from sin. He is killing the sin, but also he's raising the new man in us so that we put off the old things and we put on the new things that belong in Christ. We put off the sins and the works of the flesh and we put on and live by the Spirit and produce the fruits of the Spirit now. So that's what's happening here. And that's why we suffer in this world is so that we will then be compelled to believe in God. Because think about it. If you never suffered, how much would your faith dwindle away? Because we are naturally very prideful people, aren't we? We naturally think we can do it alone and go it alone. That was one of the big problems in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? Uh, We don't need God anymore. We can do it on our own. And that is disbelief and arrogance. And what God, he has to lay the cross on us, doesn't he? So that we will be humbled, realize we're sinners and we can't do this on our own. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. We need God's grace. We need the Holy Spirit. We need Christ. We need the love of the Father. And so then he he lays the cross on us so that we will believe again the gospel, but also then we will be of use to our neighbor because whenever we're arrogant and we think we can do it alone, we don't tend to actually love other people. We think we can use other people for our own ends. But whenever the cross comes, then we have to believe in God's grace again. And then in humility, we are now free again to serve our neighbor. So that's how the Christian life works. And that's, it's, uh, it, it doesn't go along with the way we would probably come up with uh, a system to do that, but that's what happens. All right, so Peter continues on, and, and then we're going to read here now from 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, uh, where uh, Peter eventually says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here's what Luther has to say about these verses. He says, here St. Peter gives us a warning and wants to open our eyes, and it would be worthwhile to write this verse in golden letters. Here you see what this life is and how it is portrayed, namely, that we should always wish we were dead. Here we are in the realm of the devil, not otherwise than if a pilgrim came into an inn where he knew that everybody in the house was a robber. If he had to go there, he would nevertheless arm himself and make the best provision possible. He would not sleep much. Today we are in this situation on earth where the evil spirit is a prince, has the hearts of men in his power, and through them does what he pleases. This is terrible if one looks at it in the right way. Therefore, St. Peter wants, wants to warn us here to be on our guard. He acts as a faithful servant who knows what is going on here. This is why he says, be sober. For those who gorge, guzzle, and are sated sows are good for nothing. Therefore, it is necessary for us to have this treasure with us at all times. Now, real quick, you'll notice the uh, very, um, <laughs> this is typical Lutheran. Remember, he's writing at a very rough, uh, <laughs> rough period of time, um, uh, coming out of the Middle Ages. And um, 
Well, he's very earthy, to say the least. And so when Luther talks to us, he uh, doesn't use the uh, nice, um, polished language that we might like. So um, uh, just uh, keep that in mind. I've, we've often said, right, that, that Luther would have been awesome on Twitter. And uh, he, uh, yeah, he's, he's very witty, got a great sense of humor, but also very earthy. Um, and so just, just so you know. Be watchful, he says, not only spiritually, but also physically. For a lazy body that likes to sleep after it has gorged itself full and guzzled will not resist the devil, because this becomes difficult even for those who have faith and are spiritual. Why should we be sober and vigilant? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The evil spirit does not sleep. He is cunning and malicious. He has determined to assail us, and he knows the right stratagem to employ to accomplish this. He prowls about like a hungry lion. He roars. He would like to devour everything. Here, St. Peter gives us an excellent admonition. He reveals our enemy to us in order that we may be on our guard against him. Thus, Paul also says, we are not ignorant of his designs. But the prowling around takes place in such a way that he makes us careless, then wrath, quarreling, pride, unchastity, and contempt for God follow. Note well here that he says, the devil prowls around. He is not in your sight when you are armed, but he looks in front and behind, inside and outside, for a place at which to attack you. When he attacks you here now, he soon rushes there and attacks you at another place. He hastens from one side to the other and employs all kinds of cunning and trickery to make you fall. And even if you are well armed at one place, he pounces on you at another place. If he cannot knock you down from there either, he attacks you from somewhere else. Thus he never ceases, but goes all around and gives no rest anywhere. But we are fools and pay no attention to it. We go our way and are not watchful. Thus it is easy for him to gain ground. Now let everyone pay proper heed to this. Everyone will notice something in himself. He who has tried it is well aware of it. Therefore, we are miserable people who go along so heedlessly. If we look at it in the right manner, we should cry murder against life. Thus Job says, Has not man a hard service upon earth, and are not his days like the days of a hireling? Why then does God leave us in this life and misery? He does so in order that faith may be exercised and grow, that we may hasten from this life, that we may long for death and desire to die. Verse 9, now, resist him firm in your faith. Luther says this, you must be sober and vigilant, but in order that the body may be ready. But this does not yet vanquish the devil. It is done only in order that you may give the body less reason to sin. The true sword is your strong and firm faith. If you take hold of God's word in your heart and cling to it with faith, the devil cannot win, but must flee. If you can say, this is what my God has said, and I take my stand on it, you will see that the devil will soon go away. Then aversion, evil lust, anger, greed, melancholy, and doubt all go away. But the devil is crafty and is unwilling to let this happen to you. He tries to wrest the sword from your hand. If he makes you lazy so that the body becomes unfit and is inclined to rascality, he soon tears the sword out of your hand. This is what he did to Eve. She had God's word. If she had clung to it, she would not have fallen. But when the devil saw that she held the, the word in such low esteem, he tore it from her heart and she let it go. Thus the devil won. 
Now that's that's very interesting, isn't it? Again, that's notice what he's saying. He's saying the same. Uh, what happened in Genesis three is what's being repeated. The rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible, is simply in many, many, many ways. The whole Bible is simply a commentary on Genesis one through three. Creation, fall, promised redemption. And after that, everything else is commentary in a sense and flows from that uh, of Christ, the promise of Christ and how it's all worked out. So that's what he's saying is, listen, look at what happened with Eve. Look at what happened with her. We need to be on our guard. Luther continues, thus St. Peter has given us adequate instruction as to how we should fight against the devil. This does not require much running to and fro or any work you can do. It requires only that you cling to the word through faith. When the devil comes and wants to drive you into melancholy because of your sin, just take hold of the word of God, which promises forgiveness of sin and rely on it. Then the devil will soon desist. St. Peter continues, knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. That is, do not be surprised if you must be assailed by the devil, but take comfort in the fact that you are not alone, but that there are more. But that there are more. They too must suffer this way. And bear in mind that your brothers help you fight. Now this is the epistle in which you have heard a genuine Christian doctrine adequately presented. How masterfully St. Peter has described faith, love, and the Holy Cross, and how he teaches and warns us how we should fight with the devil. Now he who understands this epistle undoubtedly has enough and needs no more, except that God does more than is required by teaching the same things richly in other books. But they contain nothing that is different. For here the apostle has forgotten nothing that a Christian must know. In conclusion, he does what a good preacher should do. Namely, that he should bear in mind that he must not only feed, but must also take care of and pray for them. He closes with a prayer that God may give them grace and strength to take hold of the word and retain it. And then in verse 10, he, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, and strengthen you. This is the wish with which he commends his listeners to God, to God who alone gives grace and not only a little grace, but all grace piled up, who has called you through Christ to have eternal glory, not by reason of any merit on your part, but through Christ. If you have him, you have eternal glory and salvation without any merit on your part. He will establish you so that you become strong, grow and stand firm and are able to accomplish much. In addition, he will strengthen and support you so that you are able to bear and suffer everything. I think that's really helpful stuff as we think about what it is to do battle with the devil. We often don't think about that. At least I don't. Maybe you do, but I don't. Um, and that is one of the devil's great victories, isn't it? That we don't think about him. Now, we don't want to think about him too much because we're not called to be obsessive. Um, similarly, I guess in a sense, right? Eve was not commanded. She was commanded to uh, to guard and to keep the garden, but she wasn't commanded to go out and look for everything bad. But when the devil came to her, she was to believe God's word and not the devil. Similarly, we're not supposed to go around this world looking for the devil. Believe me, the devil will come for us. And But when he does come, 
We must believe the word of God. We must uh, believe it. And when we fail, because we do fail, we are, take great joy that in the Lord's words to Peter, when he says that whenever Peter would fall, he says um, that I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And similarly, our faith though we do have failures in this life and we do succumb to temptation. We sin every day. We are so grateful that the Lord Jesus prays for us and picks us right back up and gives us that word of the forgiveness of our sins. Okay, now going into 2 Peter. um, uh, Let me see what I've got here. I've got, uh, I guess, three readings from 2 Peter. Okay, 2 Peter... opens up uh, this way, uh, beginning in verse uh, 3. So 2 Peter 1, 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Luther writes this. This is the first part. Here, Saint P- here Peter begins to write about the kind of blessings we have received from God through faith. Namely, that since we have learned to know God through faith, divine power has been granted to us. But what kind of power? It is the kind of power that pertains to life and godliness. That is, when we believe, we receive so much that God gives us his power of every kind which dwells with and in us in such a way that what we say and do is not said or done by us, but is said and done by God himself. God is strong, powerful, and almighty in us, even though we suffer, die, and are weak before the world. Accordingly, we have no power or ability if we do not have this divine power. But St. Peter does not want this divine power in us to be understood in such a way that we also have the ability to create heaven and earth and should work miracles as God does. For how would this help us? No, we have divine power with us to the degree that it is useful and necessary for us. Therefore, the apostle adds the words that pertain to life and godliness. That is, we have the kind of divine power with which we are abundantly blessed to do good and to live eternally. He says about through the knowledge of him who call us such divine power and great grace come from nothing else than this knowledge of God. For if you regard him as a God, he will also deal with you as a God. Thus, St. Peter also declares, or excuse me, St. Paul also declares in 1 Corinthians 1, 5 through 7, that in every way you were enriched in him with all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. This is the greatest, noblest, and most necessary gift God can give us, a gift we should not exchange for everything heaven and earth contain. For what would it profit you to be able to go even through fire and water and to perform all kinds of miracles if you did not have it? In fact, many people who perform such wonders are damned. But the greatest miracle of all is the fact that God gives us the kind of power through which all our sins are remitted and eradicated, and death, the devil, and hell are vanquished and devoured, so that we have an undaunted conscience and a cheerful heart and fear nothing. How did it happen that we were called by God? God let the Holy Gospel go out into the world and be proclaimed. No man worked for this beforehand, nor did anyone implore and beg him to do so. 
but before anyone thought of it, he offered such grace, presented it, and poured it out richly and beyond measure, in order that he alone might have the glory and the honor resulting from it, and that, he might, and that we might ascribe to him alone the ability and the power. For this is not our work, it is his alone. Therefore, since we did not do the calling, we should not boast as though we had done it, but we should extol and thank him for giving us the gospel, and in this way bestowing strength and power against the devil, death, and all adversity. So I, I like that part real quick there, by, by the way, because he points out that <clears throat> we did not, God called us through this knowledge, but we, we, we did not ask for this. It was pure gift on his part. He offered us such grace and calls us to it just simply because he is a God of love and mercy and compassion, not because of anything that we asked for. Uh, Commentating now on verse 4, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, Luther says, St. Peter adds these words in order to explain the nature and character of faith. If we know him as God, then through faith we have eternal life and the divine power with which we overcome death and the devil. But we do not see and feel this. Nevertheless, it has been promised to us. To be sure, all this is ours, but it is not yet manifest. On the last day, however, we shall see it revealed. Here, it has its beginning in faith, but we do not have it in perfection. Yet we have the promise that we shall live here in divine power and later in eternal bliss. Now he who believes this has it. He who does not believe this does not have it and must be lost eternally. Peter now explains further how great and precious this is. He says that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Through the power of faith, he says, we partake of and have association or communion with the divine nature. This is a verse without a parallel in the New and the Old Testament, even though unbelievers regard it as a trivial matter that we partake of the divine nature itself. But what is the divine nature? It is eternal truth, righteousness, wisdom, everlasting life, peace, joy, happiness, and whatever can be called good. Now, he who becomes a partaker of the divine nature receives all this so that he lives eternally and has everlasting peace, joy, and happiness, and is pure, clean, righteous, and almighty against the devil, sin, and death. Therefore, this is what Peter wants to say. Just as God cannot be deprived of being eternal life and eternal truth, so you cannot be deprived of this. If anything is done to you, it must be done to God. For he who wants to oppress a Christian must oppress God. All this is included in the term divine nature, and St. Peter has used it for the very purpose of including all this. It is surely something great when one believes it, but as I have stated above, with all these instructions, he does not lay a foundation for faith, but emphasizes what great and rich blessings we receive through faith. For this reason, he says, you will have all this if you live in such a way that you give evidence of your faith by shunning worldly lusts. So of, he opens up there in Second Peter and talks about the great blessings that we have been given in Christ Jesus. But then he begins to talk about the prophetic word, and then in chapter 2 begins to warn about these false teachers, right? 
in verse 1 of chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Uh, Luther says this about this verse. He says, this is what St. Peter wants to say. Just as all prophecy has emanated from the Holy Spirit since the beginning of the world, so this must be true until the end of the world, in order that nothing but God's word may be preached. Yet it has always happened that there have been false teachers alongside the true prophets in God's word, and so it will remain. Therefore, since you now have God's word, you must expect to have false teachers too. This is sufficient warning. Nor can it fail to happen that where God's word is correctly proclaimed, false preachers will arise hard by. The reason is that not everybody lays hold of the word and believes in it, even though it is preached to all. Those who believe it follow and retain it, but the majority who do not believe get a false understanding of it, and this gives rise to false teachers. Unfortunately, however, we paid no attention to this, nor did we heed this warning. Instead, we ran along and did what was preached. Here we lost our heads. We fell into and went along in the delusion that the Pope, together with his priests and monks, could not err. And those who should have arrested this error were the first to instill it in us. Therefore, we are not excused if we believe falsely and follow false teachers. The fact that we did not know better will not help us, since we were warned in advance. Furthermore, God gave us the command that everyone should judge and be accountable for the message of this or of that preacher. If we do not do this, we are lost. Thus, the salvation of everyone's soul depends on knowing what God's word and false teachings are. Many more such warnings are found here and there in Scripture. In Acts 20, 29-30, St. Paul also adds such an admonition at the end of his sermon in which he blessed the Ephesians and took leave of them. This is what he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Christ also announces this in Matthew 24, 23-24. Then if anyone says to you, Lo, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And Paul declares again in 1 Timothy 4, 1-2, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons through the pretensions of liars. Now, as forceful as these warnings were, we should surely have been wise. Yet it did not help. The warnings were ignored. Thus, we always went along and let ourselves be misled. Now, what Luther is talking about there, you can tell the personal element he is highlighting for them. Remember, he's speaking this in the 1500s, and he's writing and, and speaking this and saying, listen, before the Reformation happened, before God opened my eyes and opened our eyes to the, to the, to the errors of the, the church and the Pope and such like that, he says, we, we were following these people. And But Peter had always warned and said there will be false teachers that are going to arise within the church. And, and that's what Luther here is saying. Listen, Peter told us that this stuff was going to be happening. We need to be on guard. And that's the, the role of every Christian, because even though the, the Luther wrote this what, five almost 500 years ago, um, we still have the same need to be vigilant today. Now, we don't want to be the kind of people that are always suspicious of everything. On the other hand, 
whenever, if we, we, we first of all want to find a, a good church, a church where the word of God is upheld and preached faithfully and correctly. Um, and so, but if we find a church like that, we typically want to give, be charitable to the um, pastors and to the, uh, the, the teachers that are there preaching and teaching the word of God. We want to be charitable. On the other hand, we still want to, we want to, in a sense, trust but verify. And we always want to be looking back at our Bibles and, and trying to make sure that what is being said is according to the Word of God, because that's actually healthy for the pastors and for the teachers in the church, that we are being held accountable by the congregation. But also, um, we want the congregation to give a, a, a charitable uh, understanding um, and also in a sense, to give the benefit of the doubt to your pastors and to your teachers. Um, again, not because we have authority in and of ourselves, but because um, as a, I think as a general attitude, um, we're supposed to believe the best about others. And, uh, and so if you are in a Bible-believing church, you want to give the benefit of the doubt to your pastors, but that doesn't mean that you, um, that you don't um, uh, search the scriptures yourselves to see if these things are so. Right, you can do those things. It's it's in many ways, it's just about attitude, isn't it? And similarly, we don't want pastors to just be saying, "Well, because I say it, you have to believe that." That's not appropriate either, is it? Uh, the word of God is supreme over everyone. Uh, God speaks, and He alone is the final authority in all of these things. No pastor, no congregant is. Um, so it's always about the word, and so that's what we want to be be aware of. Though is there will be false preachers, though false teachers false prophets who will come around and Luther is saying, we should have known this. Um, and today we should be aware of that. Lastly, the last reading is from uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, the last chapter of, of uh, 2 Peter, uh, where he says this beginning in verse uh, 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Okay, here's what Luther has to say about this section. With these words, St. Peter confronts those about whom he has just spoken and who say, the apostles have stated repeatedly that the last day will come soon. Yet everything is as it was before, even though such a long time has now elapsed. St. Peter took this verse from Psalm 90, verse 4, where Moses says, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past. This comes about in the following way. There are two ways of looking at things, God's way and the way of the world. Thus, this life and the life to come are of two kinds. This life cannot be the same as the life to come, since no one can enter the life to come except through death, that is, through the cessation of this life. Now, this life amounts to eating, drinking, sleeping, digesting, begetting children, etc. Here, everything goes by number, hours, days, and years in succession. Now, when you want to look at the life to come, you must erase the course of this life from your mind. You dare not think that you can measure it as this life is measured. There, everything will be one day, one hour, one moment. Now, since before God there is no reckoning of time, before him a thousand years must be as one day, 
Therefore, Adam, the first man, is just as close to him as the man who will be born last before the last day. For God does not see time longitudinally. He sees it transversely, as if you were looking transversely at a tall tree lying before you. Then you can see both ends at the same time. This you cannot do if you look at it longitudinally. With our reason, we cannot look at time in any other way than longitudinally. Beginning with Adam, we must count one year after the other until the last day. But in God's sight, everything is is in one heap. What is long for us is short for him and vice versa. Here there is neither measure nor number. Thus man dies. His body is interred and decays. It lies in the ground and knows nothing. But when the first man arises on the last day, he will think that he has been, that he has been lying there barely an hour. Then he will look about and discover that many people were born before him and came after him. About this he knew nothing. Now therefore St. Peter declares here that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some scoffers think, but that he is long-suffering. Therefore you should be prepared for the last day, for it will come soon enough for everyone after his death. Then he will say, Behold, I died only a short what time ago. But this day will come all too quickly for the world. When people say, there is peace and all is well, the day will break and come upon them, as St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. And like a mighty thunderstorm, the day will burst forth with such a great crash that everything will have to be consumed in one moment. And concluding there where Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of persons ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Luther closes here with this. Since you know that everything must pass away, both heaven and earth, consider how completely you must be prepared with a saintly and godly life and conduct to meet this day. Thus, St. Peter describes this day as imminent in order that they may be ready for it, hope for it with joy and hasten to meet it as the day which delivers us from sin, death, and hell. Very good. I think those are helpful themes. Um, As we close thinking about that last day, um, we would do well to think about it, to remember it could happen at any moment, and thus to believe the promises of the gospel, to humble ourselves under his hand, and to love our neighbors while we have the time, to love each other, to serve one another because we have everything we need in Christ Jesus and uh, we are well taken care of. Well, good. Well, thanks for listening to this next week. We will be in uh, what the, the, the Johannine epistles, right? First, second and third John before we get to Jude and revelation. So we're wrapping up very quickly Thank you for listening to this. Uh, Should be a lot of fun in the coming weeks. Take care and God bless.